be bold and be brave and just go for it. As photographers, we are always looking for powerful images that, that will hold time in place, that will draw people in and symbolize something universal, something shared, something emotional. Everybody needs to see what's going on everywhere. Pictures just stand out. This is how we remember. Insights, kits, and the conversations that matter with the world's leading photographers and filmmakers in Shutter Stories. It's World Photography Day, and we are celebrating this annual event with a very special episode that's all about photographic origins, but also about how photography has evolved into what it is today. Welcome to Shutter Stories. I'm Ilvinio Kikchin. I'm a Canon ambassador, and I'm your host for today. Later on, we'll be joined by Canon ambassadors Bruno Damicis and Ahmed Poulat, and we'll be talking about how they got started as professional photographers. But first, we are joined by Susanna Brown. She worked at London's prestigious Victoria and Albert Museum for many years and is now an independent curator. She's here to talk to us about photography's incredible 150-year history. Welcome to the show, Susanna. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm a really big fan of Shutter Stories. So it's it's wonderful to be talking to you. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for being here. So can you tell a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in photography in the first place? Sure, sure, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm not a photographer. I'm an art historian, but at university uh, in Bristol, I did run the little darkroom in my student halls of residence. And, and I guess I, I loved that sort of magical alchemy that happened in that little tiny room. And I taught other students how to use the darkroom and organised uh, photography trips around the city and exhibitions of our pictures. And for me, I guess that's one of the, the really brilliant things about photography as a creative medium. Anyone can enjoy the process of taking their own pictures as an amateur. And I think the same isn't really true of other media. Uh, you know, most people are slightly daunted by the idea of making, say, an oil painting or a sculpture. But photography is accessible to a much wider crowd. Um, and after my studies at university, my first real job was in the huge photography collection at the National Portrait Gallery uh, in London. Oh, wow. I was still studying at that time for my master's degree and I was very young, but I had a, a really brilliant boss who encouraged the junior staff and, and gave us some exciting opportunities. And then uh, in 2008, I moved from the National Portrait Gallery to the V&A, or Victoria and Albert Museum, to give it its full name, uh, where I worked until uh, very recently. And actually, I, I started off uh, life at the V&A working in the sculpture collection, but I moved into photography. Uh, and the V&A, to me, is a, a really magical place. You know, it's, it's enormous and totally eclectic it, the collection there includes everything from renaissance works by michelangelo and leonardo to stained glass windows uh, ancient teapots and stunning couture dresses and everything in between and the photo collection includes around 800,000 important wow. pictures <laughs> yeah it's it's vast as well as 6,000 uh, historic cameras and, and that collection really spans the whole history 
of photography from its its very birth in the 19th century right up to the present day. And of course, it includes some of the, the most valuable and the rarest and most famous photos ever made anywhere in the world. And I guess for me, it's a constantly fascinating medium because it, it continues to evolve all the time. It's still a very young art form. And it's mm. always had this amazing ability to be many different things simultaneously. So it's an expressive art form, but it's also a tool for communication universally and a tool for scientific uh, advancement. But on a personal level, it's also the most important means for capturing and retaining our personal memories these days. Do you like taking pictures yourself as well? I love taking pictures, but <laughs> having spent the last 17 years or so looking at the work of professional photographers, I always feel that my pictures uh, are somewhat lacking <laughs> in talent. <laughs> no, but you're right. It is, I mean, I guess as a photographer myself, I take pictures when I'm working on stories, but I take um, less images of like family things. I do take them, but it's in another kind of atmosphere. Uh, and I also get frustrated by that because I think, oh, they have to be great. They have to be perfect. And then I end up taking not as many pictures of family and mostly just when I'm working, which is a bit weird, actually. Um, I have to say, when, when I go on holiday, I sort of leave it up to my husband, Mike, to take all the pictures because <laughs> he has a really great camera um, and, and I don't. <laughs> it's funny how that works, right? Oh, but I really, uh, um, it's funny how you just called the dark room such a magic place because that's also how I started uh, my photography career. Um, I don't know a whole lot about um, photography's beginnings at all because I never really studied photography. So I'm really excited for this episode to learn more from you about those beginnings. But yeah, the way I kind of went into photography was in high school when I did an exchange year in America and uh, they had a photography class in high school and they had a dark room and I just remember that magical feeling when you see a picture appearing and I knew right that moment like okay is this actually a job a person can do and I realized right away I wanted to become a photographer and then study journalism but unfortunately um, the whole kind of I went to study photojournalism I didn't learn as much from the history of photography though so I've been photographing for 15 years now and that's yeah unfortunately not as much um, I don't have as much background so I really want to learn from you about what was the first photograph for instance and when did it all start so yeah please what tell me what were photography's beginnings Gosh, that's it's such a huge. It's a big question. question. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to uh, keep it brief because otherwise <laughs> we'll be here all night. Um, but we, I suppose, we often say, and and history books tell us that photography was invented in the 1800s, and we know that the word photography was only used for the first time in 1839, and the word was coined um, by the scientist Sir John Herschel. And it comes from the Greek words, uh, photos meaning light and graphene meaning to draw. So photography literally means drawing with light. 
which I, I love as an expression. But the story of photography's origins actually begins long before the 1800s. Uh, with the invention of the camera obscura, which is the forerunner to our modern cameras. A camera obscura is very simply a dark room or a dark box with a hole in one wall through which images of objects outside this dark space can be projected uh, upside down onto the opposite wall in the box. And we think that the camera obscura was known over 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece and China, but it's really in the, the 16th century, in the, in the Renaissance period, when a, a big leap forward comes when scientists added lenses to adjust the aperture size of the camera obscura and gradually smaller, uh, more portable versions of camera obscura became popular with artists of the day as a way of creating images that they could trace. And at the same time, scientists were experimenting with different light-sensitive chemicals to find a way uh, of recording a permanent image from the camera obscura. And there's, there's quite a breakthrough that happens in the 1720s uh, when a German scientist proved that light could cause the darkening of silver salts. And, and we know that silver was, was a very important chemical. Um, but that scientist didn't actually attempt to kind of save and preserve any of his images permanently. But the discovery that he made was, was hugely important and in combination with the camera obscura, provided basic technology that was necessary for what we think of as, as modern photography, which really came into being in the early 19th century. And there are many pioneers and, and great inventors involved in those early years. But um, I suppose the three who are, who are most uh, popular or most, most well known to us today um, are Nisa Fournieps and Louis Daguerre working in France and mm -hmm. William Henry Fox Talbot, who is working in Britain. And I think it, it can be very hard in the 21st century for people to imagine the absolutely massive challenges that these inventors and scientists were facing. And in fact, the very real danger um, <laughs> that they, they put themselves in. Now what kind of danger? What kind of danger? Yeah, well, you know, early photographic processes uh, often involved naked flames and really lethal chemicals like cyanide and mercury and, and wet plate processes included chemicals um, that can and often did explode uh, if handled, you know, in the wrong way. So it was really a pretty dangerous uh, pursuit and, and was incredibly difficult to learn and perform uh, and also incredibly expensive uh, in terms of equipment and apparatus. You know, these people, of course, were making their cameras from scratch. You, you yeah. couldn't go online or walk down to your local high street and buy a camera. Can you imagine explaining this to a teenager with a cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> taking, I mean, it's, I mean, 
It's just crazy to imagine that it was such a process. Yeah, and and I think particularly for younger people who've only ever sort of lived with digital photography, when mm. you sort of tell these stories about these incredible early pioneers and the scientists, you know, at the cutting edge in the 1830s and 40s, their eyes kind of widen in, in disbelief about, you know, the, the complex nature of making just one single picture when today, you know, in the space of a few seconds, we can take a hundred pictures. Hmm. Yeah, so so much has changed. It's unbelievable because when I was just talking about that uh, darkroom um, kind of magic that I experienced in high school, it's 15 years ago, no, a bit, a bit longer. Uh, but I've been a pro, uh, let's see, yeah, I started my pro career 15 years ago. So it must have been like 17 years ago, but that was the only time I developed film. Mm -hmm. After that, after I finished school, it was only in school basically, and then right after it was all digital. I had my first digital uh, Canon camera actually. That went so quickly as well. The I time, think time changed within 15 years already. It's incredible, isn't it? I think, sorry, I interrupted you. I think it's absolutely incredible how quickly the technology has come on in recent years. And, you know, it's almost impossible to predict what things will look like in another 15 years from now. Yeah. Yeah, true. So do you know, kind of, is there anything written down what the first people or what people, uh, sorry, thought of the first images, mm. pictures, once they were able to kind of capture them on onto something that was actually held, uh, holding a, uh, a picture on it? Yeah, people were amazed, really uh, in awe of early photographs. And I think quite quickly people realised the artistic and the scientific potential of photography. You know, photography has, has always had these, these kind of two sides, the, the artistic expressive side, but the very powerful scientific and sort of documentary side. And, and audiences were fairly quick to realise in the 19th century that photography was the world's most important invention since the printing press back in the 15th century. And, you know, the, the medium helped push forward incredible advancements uh, in science in the 19th century. For example, X-ray technology began to be used in hospitals towards the end of that century. And that was soon followed by ultraviolet and infrared photography. I think perhaps um, the portrait painters were in some ways less thrilled about the invention oh, yeah, of photography. I can imagine. <laughs> um, can imagine. <laughs> because, you know, as we can well imagine, you know, making a portrait photograph uh, is much less expensive than making a painting. So, so as photo portrait studios began to pop up all around the world, a lot of those portrait painters, uh, particularly the, the miniature painters, were put out of business um, and, and people began to flock to the portrait studios instead. And in the late uh, 1850s and 1860s, there was a huge craze uh, in the carte de visite, as they were called, the, the little tiny portrait photographs on, on paper and they're mounted on little tiny cards. And, and people would sit for these portraits in professional studios and collect and swap the images with their friends and family. And they were collecting not only the portraits of themselves and people that they cared about, but also pictures of celebrities and particularly oh. royalty were immensely and popular. they were like little business cards 
or yes um, almost the same size yeah almost the same size as a kind of modern day business card um and the, the name of the photographic studio would always be be printed on the card so it's sort of an an advert for the studio as well and people would collect these and store them very carefully in in leather bound albums and and they would also give them to sorry but Mm. just trying to understand would you also give them to let's say we would meet for a coffee and then i would have recently uh had my picture uh taken in a studio would i then give one to you and you one to me or how absolutely that and and but uh, you know i might have um a carte de visite of queen victoria uh, or I might have a couple of carte de visites of Queen Victoria, but not uh, one of her husband, Prince Albert. And you might have a couple of Prince Albert, and we could do a trade and you know take them home and put them put them in our albums. And what's interesting when you look um, at those early albums that individuals collected is that the kind of mix between the private, the the kind of family pictures and so on sort of interspersed with pictures of very famous people. And, you know, some of those portraits of royalty were printed in the hundreds of thousands and circulated very, very widely. But I, I suppose that wasn't the only um, craze, if you like, in those early years. Um, um, so another early craze was stereoscopic photography, which involved making two images of the same subject usually with a special camera that had two lenses in it placed about two and a half inches apart. What's that? Six centimetres apart, um, Mm -hmm. which is the distance between the human eyes. And the two positive photographs that were made would be glued side by side um, on a little stiff piece of card. And then that card could be put in a holder called a stereoscope and viewed through two little eyepieces. And the human brain brings oh, it's together... Oh, 3D-ish. Yes, effect. exactly that. It's 3D. Oh, exactly that. I know them. Your, yeah. your, your mind kind of merges the two images, which are taken from ever so slightly different vantage points. And it creates this really incredible illusion of, of 3D. And this became massively popular in the 19th century. And, you know, after dinner parties and gatherings at home people would bring out their collections of stereo photographs and and enjoy sort of showing them off to their friends and enjoy the the kind of wonder and and a lot of people really sort of traveled the world through the medium of stereoscopic photography because these small pictures um, of sort of far-flung exotic destinations could be purchased and you could sort of travel the globe from the comfort of your armchair Amazing. And is, did many of these kind of survive? Because I can imagine a lot of these haven't, especially the carte de visites that you were mentioning. I can imagine if you find an album like that, not everyone would maybe save them and maybe even throw them out, even though it's history. Um, that's absolutely Did many of these survive? Right. Yeah, that, that's such a good question. And I, I guess the the best um, preserved early photographs are normally to be found in museum collections because those things tend to have been conserved and protected um, to a greater degree, you know, from those very damaging forces, which kind of speed up deterioration of photos, such as exposure to light and extremes of humidity and extremes of heat. Um, In the very early years, there were really two main sort of types of photographs and they looked 
very different. Um, firstly, they're the we had the daguerreotypes, which were made of very small sheets of copper, coated in silver, and then polished until um, they almost had a, a, a finish like a mirror, a very very shiny, wow. um, highly poli- polished finish. And this little metal plate was then exposed to iodine vapor to make it sensitive to light and put inside a camera obscura. And once the exposure was made, a sort of invisible image would be there latent on that metal plate. And mm-hmm. the invisible image would would only be seen once the plate was taken out of the camera and exposed to mercury fumes in a box and washed with chemicals. And then that resulting image uh, was a very delicate piece of metal that could you know be very easily scratched or damaged um so this was normally covered with a protective sheet of glass um and it's a daguerreotype is extraordinary because it's a unique one-off picture you know it's not made using a negative so that makes it very special but there's also i think something quite magical when you look at a daguerreotype because depending on the angle the image can appear either as a positive or as a negative but as we said, you know, so many of these things don't survive or the glass would would be shattered and the, the picture would be scratched. And, you know, often um, early developments in sort of cleaning photographs actually did more damage than good. Oh, no. But then we, we have sort of at the other end of the scale, you know, from the daguerreotype, the, the early process called the calotype. And this is the original negative and positive process. Um, sometimes we also call this the Talbotype after its inventor, William Henry Fox Talbot. And this process um, used a paper negative to make a print um, with the resulting image being much softer, you know, less crisp than a daguerreotype. Mm. Um, but because a negative is made, obviously it's possible to make lots of copies so the calotype had a big advantage over the daguerreotype and it was much cheaper as well. Um, and the exposure times, of course, for these early photographs could be many minutes. So uh, it's not surprising, perhaps, that still life subjects or really anything that couldn't move was <laughs> very, very popular. popular. <laughs> Instead of portraits, were there any selfies taken in that time, do you think? Did people then have to stand like still for 10 minutes or five minutes or just to take a selfie? I guess they weren't being taken. In fact, the the very, very first portrait photograph ever made was a self-portrait, um, oh, really? which, is, oh. which is interesting. <laughs> but because of these slow exposure times, um, we very rarely see people smiling, you know, and people often say to me, oh, why does everyone look so cross in early portraits or look so miserable? And it's because it's very hard to hold a smile for 60 seconds or, or longer sometimes. So it's very unusual to find an early portrait of, of someone, you know, showing their, their pearly white teeth. They normally look a bit sad. Um, but I think it's... And the eyes, I think, also look a bit... Um creepy because they're of course their eye movement you can't really keep your eyes still the whole time and then they look a bit I don't know um blurry I would say absolutely yeah Yeah. and and I love those those very early landscape pictures where you know the exposure is quite long so if a person appears kind of on the street um they're only recorded 
as a sort of ghost figure, you know, because they're, they're in motion um, and they don't stop for long enough for the camera to, to really capture them. So so often in, in sort of early street photography, you see these, these sort of spirit figures, which is kind of pe- people just walking in front of the camera as the exposure continues for, you know, maybe 30 seconds or even longer. Without having any real, like, are there any pictures of that early time, just of the like street life that had people in it that were... I don't know, accidentally standing still for a long time or? Often people were staged to stand still. Um, okay. So so that, you know, for photographers wanted a, a street scene to be populated. You know, pe- people would sort of stand like a statue <laughs> to be recorded by the camera because otherwise, you know, it, it was just a, a kind of ghost, a ghost figure. Um, which can be very beautiful, but, but quite strange as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And what kind of ways do you think um from the start of photography kind of the role of photography it changed society in many ways and i think it still is every day i mean the way social media and photography are interacting and the news and social media and photography um i guess i myself know more about how photography is currently changing society but how has it really changed society let's say a hundred years ago Mm. i think it's so important to remember that this was an age before radio before television of course before cinema so there were very few ways that information could be communicated to a big audience other than the the printed news press you know today we sort of consume images and information in so many different ways but um there was a big sort of move forward and a great breakthrough in the 1880s when there were big advancements in half-tone printing, which enabled photographs to be reproduced much more easily uh, in newspapers and magazines. But photography was really only for professionals. It it wasn't for society at large. Um, And, you know, perhaps also for the very rich, until George Eastman started his company in the 1880s and he created a a more flexible kind of role of film that allowed him to create a a self-contained little camera that held 100 film exposures. And uh, it was a very simple camera with a single lens, uh, no ability to kind of focus or adjust the lens. But it was very affordable. So these cameras became enormously popular and people could take their own pictures for the first time rather than visiting studios. And they could send their camera back with the film still inside it to the factory for the film to be developed and the prints made. Uh, I guess a bit like a modern uh, disposable film camera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they, those already existed. Which year was that or around which time? In the 1880s, those cameras called okay. the Box Brownie um, first oh, yeah. became available. And, and for the first time, you know, photography became uh, a lot more open to, to a kind of mass audience of, of amateurs and enthusiasts who didn't need to have huge scientific knowledge or huge amounts of money uh, to enjoy taking pictures. I really wish I would have been alive around that time um, because I, what I'm noticing now as a photographer, I mean, not in every country that I work in, but in a lot of places, um, uh, people are not always as happy anymore to be photographed because they don't know 
where it ends up, in which newspaper, on which social media. And back then, actually already 15 years ago when I started, most people that would see me with a camera would be enthusiastic. They would be happy to be photographed. And that kind of changed in the last, let's say, five years, especially with younger, with the younger generation. They are very aware of how they appear in images. Um, at the same time, I have the feeling when listening to you that that there wasn't a whole lot of street photography going on because it was still quite special to take an image, I'm guessing. So you would only do it at family events or portraits. Am I right? Or was it also people just shooting in the streets? No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, people who were buying cameras like the box brownies were almost exclusively using them to to take pictures um, of you know friends and family, special occasions. Um, but there were you know, other shifts for professionals, like the the invention of more portable professional cameras in the 1920s and 30s, which gave photographers much greater freedom to go out and shoot on the streets. You know, for for the first time, really, they could shoot candid pictures in in good quality beyond the the sort of confines of the studio, because before that, cameras were so big and so heavy and immobile that shooting outside was really challenging. I mean, there, yeah. there are so many examples we could pick, but when Roger Fenton shot his famous photos of the Crimean War in 1855, he needed an entire horse-drawn wagon filled with equipment <laughs> in order to take his photographs. But by the time Sir Don McCullen was photographing the wars in Cyprus and in Vietnam in the 60s, the equipment that he required was was infinitely more portable. And I imagine as we move into the future, you know, that, that technology will get e even more portable than it already is. Yeah, it's changing extremely quickly. I really wonder where we'll be in, let's say, 100 years from now. Where do you, where do you think uh, photography is going? Where, where will we be? in let's say 50 time, 50 years from now in 50 years from now well i mean we know that in an average year today well over a trillion photographs are taken a year wow. that's number one and then 12 zeros a, a million million and that's an amazing, amazing. statistic wow. and and i expect that that number um will be infinitely bigger 50 years from now i mean it's it's incredible to me that that just in America, more photographs are made every two minutes than were taken in the whole world in the whole of the 19th century. And, and that really shows what an explosion there has been. And of course, digital cameras, I guess, have had the, the biggest impact on those figures because it's so much easier to create massive numbers of, of photographs very quickly and, you know, since I, I guess the 90s, when the, the first really good digital cameras, you know, were, were coming out for professionals, um, there's been such a massive uh, explosion in the numbers of pictures being made. And of course, no one can predict the future. But it's interesting to me that in recent years, there's actually been a massive resurgence of interest in those very early analog yes. processes, you know, among yeah. particularly sort of artists, photographers, um, we have people like Takashi Arai and Adam Fuss and, and lots of others who are currently 
making exquisite daguerreotypes uh, and Joni Sternbach and Jane Hines Bidder who make tintypes, uh, another very early form of, of photograph on metal. And I think there's also a continuing uh, interest in pictures made without cameras um, by artists like Susan Durgis uh, and Gary Fabian Miller. What kind of photographs are those? So um, if we think back to the very beginnings of photography, you know, the, the simplest form of making a photograph is laying an object on a piece of photosensitive paper wow. and yes. then shining a light on that paper to expose it. And that is the, the basics of photography. You know, you don't need a camera to make a photo. Um, so people like Susan Derges and Gary Fabian Miller, uh, Adam Fuss as well. I mean, there, there are lots of, of really brilliant practitioners at the moment who are looking back to that, that kind of basic process, but doing very exciting, creative things with the process. And I spend quite a lot of my time talking to student photographers And lots of them are loving kind of experimenting with early techniques like the cyanotype, much easier than the daguerreotype process. Um, mm. Cyanotype is also called a blueprint, which was sort of first came into use in the 1840s. I guess for me as uh, an art historian, I'm also always interested in how the history of photography is being written um, and, you know, it's a, a fundamentally important change happening right now to, to really try to expand the history of photography, which in the past was very heavily dominated by white men. Mm. And there are researchers and academics and curators working hard to uncover the previously hidden or overlooked histories of women practitioners and photographers from Africa, Asia and those diasporas so the history books are becoming much much more diverse and inclusive and of course that's something we can all feel very excited about yeah it's beautiful how sometimes you see how whole archives are being found and then widely shared and everyone's like wow why did we never know about this work of this amazing woman or yeah you're right in the african countries it's it's amazing and i think that's also um Luckily, because of the internet, the world is becoming so much smaller. So when things like that happen, when archives are being found or restored, uh, you as a photographer or photo enthusiast can be right there in the front row and um, yeah, see all these amazing images that are being found. Absolutely. And there's still beautiful. so much to, to be discovered. I think there's still such a treasure trove, you know, lurking in people's attics or tucked yeah, away in yeah. suitcases. Yeah, it's very true. And I wonder how you kind of feel about social media. And because there's, I don't know how many images are being shared there on a daily basis. You just named some crazy numbers already. Um, but is it to you, is social media a big gallery where images are being shared? Or do you feel it's almost like, uh, nah, trash can is not a nice word, but is it like a, a big hole where images are just being dropped into and never looked at it again in most cases? I think social media can be a really, you know, brilliant tool for photographers to to kind of share their work with massive audiences, you know, much bigger audiences perhaps than would go and see an exhibition in an art gallery or a museum. Um, but I suppose 
what's hard for for me about social media is there's just so much so finding the the gems you know with within um this kind of overwhelming sea of pictures can be um very time consuming you know whereas if you yeah. visit a gallery or or a museum it, the the curators have kind of done the work for you as a visitor in that they've made an edit they've made a selection um and trawled through a lot of things um but i i never think that that social media is a bad thing i think it's it's really helped make kind of that that world of professional photography much more democratic and oh. it's it's exciting uh whether those pictures will stand the test of time you know it's a, a different thing but a lot of pictures today aren't made with the the future in mind that they're, they're about the present and they don't need to to last a hundred years whereas you know at the vna where photographs were first collected in the 1850s um and and other museums that have incredible collections you know the, the curators are always thinking about when they acquire an image will this picture stand the test of time will it still be important exciting relevant in a hundred years and in social media we don't need to think like that you know we're just thinking about today so it's a, a very different way of approaching yeah. pictures although i sometimes wonder if the the massive amount of images and saving that in a way you know it it, it says so much about our current time if there are uh, one million selfies being taken each minute around the world sometimes i wish i could make a like a snapshot just to capture it for um people that are living a hundred years from now you know so they can see how crazy uh we were or maybe by that time everyone is even crazier but um i don't know sometimes i wish you could just make like an internet snapshot and and keep it and archive it i know that is being done actually but i hope it's also being done to all the endless selfies and and images that are being shared um now because in a way it's interesting it tells a lot about our current day and age yeah and and society and, and even since the very beginnings of photography you know it's been used as a tool for kind of ethnographic research and so on and, and human research and and i guess in a way what, what you're saying is you know that's still an important use of photography today as well but i suppose it's it's also about you know obsolete technology because you know, we have things that we used to save on floppy disks in the 1990s. Yeah. And if you've got your images on a floppy disk, you know, what do you do with them now? And then we had CDs and DVDs and the technology becomes obsolete quite quickly. Um, yeah. So it's it's a constant kind of uphill battle, I think, to to save and preserve those images, which only exist in a digital world. Yeah, that's true. I really I'm always nervous about my own archive because I used to have my archive on on CD-ROM and DVD and uh, you know it's and now it's all on hard disks and on the server and I really wonder what's next you know because it's so important as a photographer to um to save your work and to keep the images even though at least 80% of them which is most of the raw images on my uh server I probably won't ever look at them again. But then there are images in there, of course, that I never, ever want to lose and that I really, truly hope that do stand the test of time. And uh, But in the meantime, you are 
keeping all of the images. I have like 60 terabyte of images that I collected over 15 years. Do you, do you have kind of physical prints of the most important ones? Yeah, I do. I do. I have like a, um, an, a studio where I keep some of my prints, uh, but I don't print a whole lot. But the most important ones I will print just to have them, just in case. Uh, but I should be doing that more. I think it's it's great that you are doing that. I think that's that's really important because um, I think those those physical you know pa- paper prints will probably outlast all the digital. But then I would say that because yeah. I I come from that kind of museum background. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I and I also once lost uh, a quite big amount of images on the server. So after that, I also realized, okay, printing maybe is the safest. So I'm happy you are saying this as well. So we already discussed trends a little bit, like what is coming, where do you think photography is going? But just to round things off, yeah, what kind of trends do you think will be coming up in photography, in the photography world? Where is this heading towards? I think the the trend in analog processes isn't going away. I think more and more people are becoming excited about those what we might call kind of wet darkroom processes um and want to kind of keep alive the traditions of of those early photographic techniques um i don't think that digital photography will ever completely replace um analog photography um certainly when i i speak to the the younger generations and and students of photography um in America and in the UK where I teach, it's interesting how um, excited they are and what an appetite they have for experimenting um, with those those very early techniques. Um, and as I say, you know, I, I don't think we call it a trend. It's a, it's a massively important change. Um, but in terms of, you know, the the history books and the way that we write about photography I see it as being much much more inclusive today than it was 10 or 20 years ago which which makes me so happy Hmm. yeah that's so true I'm so happy you taught me so much about the beginning of um, the history of photography I knew so little I'm a bit ashamed actually but I I learned a lot and I really hope uh, all the listeners did too uh, thanks for sharing all this wisdom. I'll make sure to properly archive my work as well, because I do realize now when talking about photographs from so many years ago, that it's really important that I'm not just taking pictures for now, but also for, you know, for later, for Absolutely. after this time. And, and, you know, you want people to appreciate your work and discover your work long after you're you're here so um it's really important that that kind of archiving and and thinking about you know what what happens to your your life's work in a hundred years from now but it's been really lovely talking to you Ilvi. thank you for for inviting me on thank you so much for being here now joining us to continue the theme of photographic origins are two amazing canon ambassadors Calling from Amsterdam is Ahmed Polat, a photographer who was gifted a Canon film camera as a child and who never looked back. 
From those humble beginnings, he has risen to become a hugely respected fashion and documentary photographer. Also joining us is Bruno D'Amici's dialing in from Italy. And Bruno began as a self-taught photographer in the 90s working with film. Today, he is one of the most celebrated and respected wildlife photographers in the world. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello, everyone. Hello. Thanks for having me, Ilvi. Good to hear you. Thanks so much for joining us. I am very interested um, in how your careers began. I, um, yeah, let's, let's start with Ahmed. How did your interest in photography start? Mm, that's, that's, a good, that's a good question. I, I started out as, as um, not as a photographer, but I started out uh, drawing. Uh, when I was a child, I was just observing and, and, and translating that in doodles and seeing things around me. Um, it's because of those doodles that um, uh, a teacher on uh, my gymnasium, he, uh, he mentioned that uh, if I've ever thought about going to study art, and I said, can you study art? And he said, yeah, and there's open days. So I went to a school. I loved it. I uh, took my exam. I got um, selected, and when I was 18 and finished uh, gymnasium, I... Um, I went to study art in Breda, St. Joost. And, um, well, you know, the first year was kind of like getting used to all the different people, the culture, you know, me thinking that I may, you know, not belong in this kind of environment. But um, it just worked out really well. And um, one of the teachers there, very passionate about photography, you know, we're doing our first roll of film developing it, printing in a dark room. And I think that's where the love for the technology came. And then, you know, challenging myself through photography, doing homework, uh, doing street photography, doing portrait photography, it just grew on me. And um, I never looked back. And Bruno, how how did you kind of start? What's, what was the beginning of your yeah. um, career or picking up a camera? Funny... Uh, to, to to know that uh, drawing is also is part of my of my story, because uh, first comes my passion for for nature. I've always been fascinated by by wildlife, by birds especially, and uh, I was uh, in love with the outdoors. So I started to have this this contact with uh, with animals, and I wanted to freeze the the moments and the, the emotions related with these encounters. And I I picked up drawing. Uh, watercolors especially, but I really, I sucked really bad at that. So I was super frustrated. Nothing really resembled what I, what, what I wanted to convey because I also like to share, I like to, to tell stories as well. So I got intrigued by my father's film camera. Again, fathers uh, seem to be <laughs> important in, in sharing their equipment. And I, at the beginning, it was just a tool. I really wanted to get to this, uh, this, this close-ups of animals, like colorful, sharp, uh, like, uh, you know, like kind of textbook-like uh, bird and so on. Super boring pictures. And it was difficult enough. I remember the first sharp picture I really celebrated for, for days. You know, they got a sharp picture. <laughs> uh, I think it was, it was, it was a tit, <laughs> one of these birds coming to, to feed. Because I, I grew up in Rome uh, in, the, in a very busy street, so there was not little nature around but i had the fortune that part of my family comes from a from a tiny village in the in the mountains of abruzzo in central italy which is where i live now and finally and this is where i experienced nature firsthand and especially the real the wilderness like you know bears and wolves and big mountains so photography became slowly my kind of language 
And back then in the, in the mid-90s, uh, I remember I had the fortune to have a few magazines going circulating in the house. My father had a subscription to National Geographic, just to mention one. So I was surrounded by, by visuals, by pictures. There was no internet, of course, so that was the only kind of stimuli I would get. And I, my father came back from a business trip to the, to the U.S. and he brought back a, a fantastic book. It was a book by the nature photographer Jim Brandenburg about wolves. And with that book, I realized that nature photography was much more than just documenting nature, was telling a lot about yourself. And that was really a life-changing moment. And I decided I would never give up and eventually became my main profession. Wow. And did, was that also the moment when you realized this is actually a job, a career path, kind of like Ahmed said, because I, I kind of recognize that from my own career that when I really started to like photography, I think I was 17 years and I was in high school and we had a photography class and I really never would have thought this was actually a real job, that people were making money taking pictures. When, when was that moment when you realized that? Was that when you opened that uh, wolf book or already before? No, it was much, much after. I mean... It's funny, uh, it was much later, because uh, in that moment, I realized that I wanted to become good with photography. But again, it was film period, it was difficult. The learning curve was quite steep. So, um, and uh, there were no, there was no information. Basically, you, you, if you would see, I remember seeing the first white cannon lens in a local marshland. And I mean, I think we all gathered to look at this marvel. You know, there was this big lens, this guy sporting this big lens. <laughs> it was a really funny moment. So basically, what happened is that I, I had a bit of confusion. I wanted to be a filmmaker, a photographer, a biologist. I wanted to track down grizzlies. I wanted to photograph birds. I, I wanted to do everything. And of course, uh, that confusion didn't bring me very far. So I pursued a career as a first. Uh, uh, I did my studies at, at university. I became... Um, I got a master in biology and I realized that research actually was not for me. I wanted to become a photographer and all around me, everybody said, look, you can be many things, but a nature photographer, it's almost impossible. It's almost like becoming hmm. a soccer player in your late thirties or like a singer when you're, you cannot sing. So, um, uh, <laughs> that's th a great way. That was to really a moment. <laughs> I, I could photograph at least, but that was a that was an important moment because uh, I decided that Italy was not a good environment for me to 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 pursue this career. So I moved to Germany. I lived in Berlin, and this is where I uh, I run literally into a few professionals. Back then in Germany, there were about sixty full time wildlife photographers, while in Italy there were maybe two or three. So that tells a lot about wow. the, the the difference. And when I was yeah. there. Uh, I mean, learning to photograph is one thing. G getting to know the subjects, getting uh, learning how to tell a story is another thing. But to become a professional uh, photographer, to sell your pictures, to approach clients, that was something completely new to me. And I really, really owe these people, uh, the, the, the German Association of, Ger of Nature Photographers, who kind of introduced me to this world, how to, to write, uh, to, to prepare an expose, how to approach a magazine, and that's where I started my editorial uh, photography career in, uh, as a nature photographer. Beautiful, beautiful. And Ahmed, after your school uh, career, how did you kind of decide uh, what you wanted to focus on? Which kind of stories and how did you start working, basically? Um, a good question. I, like, so when school finished and everybody was looking for what would be the next thing i kind of already knew 
what I wanted to do because during my last years on the academy, I was uh, becoming more aware of the fact that um, working in, uh, in in Holland, uh, being Dutch uh, of uh, Turkish descent, I really uh, needed to you know find a way to to connect to that part of myself. Um, and, um, so I decided to focus more and more on, uh, my work in Turkey, um, building up a network, uh, getting to know the culture better. I mean, I spoke a little bit of Turkish, but not that much. So photography was really for me a vehicle to, or maybe a reason or something to hold on to, uh, while making this personal journey. And it took me eight years. Um, uh, some of my, Uh, teachers had said, like, you know, it's, uh, you know, building up a career takes at least 10 years. So um, I had that kind of understanding that if you really want to make your mark, if you really uh, want to uh, show who you are, um, uh, no, you know, really have to uh, work on uh, some of the things you feel are important long term. Now, we, you know, you don't have social media at that time. There was none of those things. So, um, but there is some longevity in it. You know, you you under, start to understand uh, better, uh, not just the, the story that you want to work on, uh, but also your craft. You know, it's just putting in all these hours. I was living, breathing photography. I was reading history of photography, everything I could get my hands on. I was meeting photographers, especially in Istanbul, because Istanbul was this amazing international city. And, you know, at that time, or maybe, you know, before that time, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, uh, Turkey was quite, let's just say, disconnected from the world. So um, while I was going there, kind of like in my prime, in my youth, I was meeting young, talented artists, photographers, uh, musicians, writers, um, and singers. And, and, and it was all happening. It was all starting to come out. It was this kind of renaissance, this feeling uh, of setting up new galleries, new, there was a new modern museum, museum coming up. And, um, um, you know, all these new endeavors and a lot of people with strong ambition made it very excited to be in Istanbul. Um, so my answer also to, um, you know, how I got into, let's say, the market, it was basically by uh, creating our own. Um, and I feel very proud to be part of that story in um, especially building something up in, uh, in Istanbul. And what kind of stories at the time were you working for? Because I think you were also a picture editor, or am I wrong? Being in this, uh, uh, you know, um, I was telling you about this up-and-coming market. And um, what's the exciting part is that everything is open. Um, I'm, you know, born and raised in Holland. Uh, everything here was quite, uh, the pie was already shared and, you know, there was not a lot of space uh, there was no discussion on diversity or even the interest of uh, people with different perspective. Uh, uh, you were all measured according to the same traditions and most people were already there to keep you out. Uh, now I say that uh, looking back, but at that time it didn't feel that way. I did, you know, get help. I did have people supporting me, but it was hard. It was really tough, uh, especially on doing stories the way I wanted to do them. And, and you know, and I love uh, a certain tradition of, uh, documentary photography, but there was no, uh, let's just say there was no space uh, for mixing it up with other things. People were very kind of clear, this is what you do and that's what you keep uh, doing. 
Uh, but in Turkey, I got invited to, um, you know, be involved in the fashion industry. Um, some of my first uh, documentary work was published in the French Vogue. And from there on, when the Turkish Vogue um, uh, was uh, created, um, I had uh, this phone call from this uh, art director uh, to ask me to come over. I thought they wanted to do like a another reportage or portrait story. But the fashion editor saw my work and, you know, she really liked the idea of me doing the first uh, fashion story for Vogue Turkey based in Turkey, um, like uh, like William Klein did. You know, one of my um, uh, uh, photographers that I uh, love to watch. And so I, you know, went into that uh, without really knowing maybe uh, or comprehending the whole picture of what Vogue meant or working for this um, iconic publication. Uh, but um, I loved every step of it. It was very exciting to work with a crew, having models fly over from all places to to do a shoot. And for me, just to build the story, understanding the Turkish culture and utilizing my experience as a photographer all came together. And um, I did several more stories after that. And um, even, um, uh, you know, after doing a, several of these uh, uh, new kind of conceptual works for Vogue, um, I was asked to um, be the art and creative director of Vogue Turkey, which I did as well. So I enjoyed uh, that time and I loved doing that. Um, but I also um, wanted more. And um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, part of the journey is to always keep looking uh, for what is the next thing that you need to do. So, Bruno, you are entirely self-taught. So besides wanting to know how you got your first assignments, I also would like to know this, the part that you are self-taught. Does that kind of yeah give you a unique way of working or was it actually more difficult to get your first assignment because people maybe wanted to see your qualifications uh, in paper, like a diploma? Well, uh, not exactly. Actually, in my, let's say, genre, um, in a way, the scientific background was, for, for a while, was more helpful because dealing with, uh, with animals, with, uh, with natural habitats, um, having this knowledge and network with scientists, with, uh, with fellow naturalists, would have opened doors to me and, uh, and introduced me to, to, to some opportunities. Uh, over the years, uh, I kind of missed uh, not having maybe a more journalistic background or maybe some kind of uh, insight into design. It's something that I learned mm -hmm. over time, over this 20 years of, uh, let's say, career. What was very important is that, uh, as for Hamid, uh, the, cha the, life, the change in life of moving to another country, moving, in my case, to Germany, to Berlin, which again... Uh, in the early 2000s was uh, also very, very refreshing and creative environment, uh, very inexpensive. So allowing creative people to, to, to lead a decent, uh, have a lifestyle and uh, without, uh, you know, committing too much uh, um, in terms of expenses was, was truly uh, mm. appealing. So I moved to Germany. I bloody wanted to become a nature photographer <laughs> full time. All around me, there were these professionals with these big shiny lenses uh, traveling back from uh, the Antarctica, from Kenya, from, from Scandinavia. And that was me, like 23, 
with a degree in biology, a lot of ideas and, and not much dream. money. <laughs> and uh, literally, literally broke. And how do you become an age photographer in these conditions? I realized that Berlin, apart from an incredibly wild nightlife, also had a nice, interesting uh, daily wildlife. There are plenty of animals living there, like foxes and falcons and wild boars and badgers and whatnot. Something maybe more common to the UK, but in Berlin at a very, very large scale. So I focused, uh, I started focusing on urban wildlife. I went around with my bike. Smart move, because you could uh, do that uh, with less money, I'd say. Yes, and nobody was doing that. So everybody was ignoring that. So the, the, the experience taught me the basic principles of my career. First of all, work on a project. Don't work on single spectacular pictures, but just work on a, uh, get a body of work, which over time it becomes more competitive and more sellable than a single, maybe sensational shot. That was the first lesson learned. The second, uh, learn, um, second lesson, sorry, it was about doing research. So planning carefully every shot, I let animals do their thing. But in, from my side, I know almost everything about them, which puts me in the right place at the right time. So this is the ideal scenario. And also I learned to give a little bit of a journalistic twist to my wildlife photography. So using wide angles, getting closer to the animals, including the environment, to tell more of a story. Mm. And that made uh, my first pictures more, let's say, uh, standing out of the crowd, which was not such a big crowd in the early 2000s, to be honest, as well. But uh, there was no Instagram, there was nothing. So the nature photographers were a bunch of weirdos who kind of had to hide their job in front of other people in public. And now it's it's funny to <laughs> see all this uh, change. These people in camouflage who take selfies and get thousands of likes on on social media. That is the world is upside down. It's and I was crazy. Telling people it that changed the, so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. Getting up at 3 a.m. to photograph a kingfisher, it was something you would really didn't, wouldn't tell loud at a party. So, But um, <laughs> it, it is, yeah, everything has changed. So that's for sure over these 20 years. But what was important is that uh, I learned that ideas and, and vision is more important than any, every, anything else. Of course, uh, everybody has a desire of traveling or getting to exotic places, but Every story, uh, everywhere there is a story that is uh, waiting to be told. Yeah, it's very true. And I also think that the public in general really like to, or they are more engaged, I think, when it comes to storytelling instead of just single images, even though they can be beautiful. But I think in general, people want to, um, yeah, kind of have a certain feeling when looking at images. And I think that's easier when it's a story when you're following a certain narrative. Yes, of course. I was wondering, because um, you were talking uh, about seeing the first white Canon lens uh, in the beginning of your career and that everyone was quite mesmerized by it. What were some important, or let's say the most important, the key moments um, in technology that changed um, during your career? I think technology was really important, um, the development of new digital cameras. Um, and it was the Canon um, um, D, what was it, 5D Mark II uh, that really persuaded me to, to leave uh, film and go into digital photography. Um, also because my, you know, there was this wish I had, a wish uh, to, to do film. But knowing that the gear is so expensive, so how do I train uh, myself into, you know, finding out if I could do something like, you know, uh, 
becoming more aware of what a DOP would do instead of a photographer. I think there's, those are two different skills and you need to develop it. So when the uh, 5D Mark II came out, I bought it. I was in love. I loved it. I used it for um, my jobs and I used it also to, to push myself into, uh, you know, engaging more in film and how I could work um, uh, with these cameras. Um, and I think um, one, one of the latest developments has really pushed it even further is the ESR-5, where, um, you know, the camera now and the lenses connected with these beautiful lenses, now we can really, really make uh, a, a long project. So, Ahmed, in your career, what is the most important lesson that you've learned kind of along the way of this work we're doing? Ooh. Looking back, uh, what would I tell myself? I mean, a lot is changing right now. And, um, you know, I'm very happy for the new generation in the sense of there are new challenges, but there are also old challenges that are now being broken down. I mean, we have to have more diversity. And we finally realized, and I mean, I, I say we as an industry, that it's very important to be inclusive of representation. Um, 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. You know, there was only, no, there were no curators um, uh, that could curate the kind of work. My work was, damned, you know, it was, it was uh, people would say, problematic or difficult to position. Some of my early stories Especially when I, you know, uh, 15 years ago, I worked on a, uh, started working with a group of people that wanted to create more understanding about their own uh, history. Um, and they called themselves the Afro Turks. Um, um, you know, I was working with Mustafa Olpak, the founder of the Afro Turk Foundation. And um, I met him. Uh, we drank some tea. We were discussing, uh, you know, what would be interesting and what. Could you know? Could photography play a role in um, in you know uplifting uh, a community and creating a narrative that would be or discourse that would be uh, um, seen more internationally? Um, it was very hard. It was just really hard. I mean, not not a lot of interest to have you know to be honest. And um, uh, now, finally, after sixteen years of, of doing small. Um, uh, presentations. Uh, uh, I finally, I'm working on a, a great exhibition with uh, the Foam Photography Museum in Amsterdam. And uh, in 2022, we will uh, make a beautiful exhibition here in Amsterdam on the topic of the uh, slave history of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, together with the Afro-Turk uh, uh, community, uh, hopefully we get to fly them over. And uh, we will um, uh, start working on the importance of representation um, and, and, and having a, a, a much more um, inclusive uh, discourse. Yeah, I'm very proud of that, that project. So if you had to describe, I really love these questions, actually, <laughs> because um, I wish uh, I would have um, uh, known more when starting out in this career. I've been working as a photojournalist for 15 years now. And if I would have known where my career was going to take me, I would have told myself some lessons. So the question to you is, if you had to describe your young self as a photographer versus the photographer you are now, 
what is the difference and what kind of advice would you tell this young photographer with all the knowledge that you have now that you gained throughout the years? And what would I tell myself? Um, well, never stop believing, but I've never did. And that's the only true thing I can tell anybody. Never stop believing. Um, you know, be smart about it. For those people who are not interested, just leave them on the side and find those people that are um, willing to and are smart and, um, you know, listen to the ideas that you have and help you define it, um, make it stronger and better. Yeah, you have to find those people around you that are supportive of your ideas. So I think that was, uh, that's something I would tell myself. So how about you, Bruno? Uh, well, I mean, for sure, I learned that uh, photography it's uh, it's a, like a full time job, uh, either at your desk or in the field. So I spent probably way too much time in the field, which of course was the the, the sweet part, and a little marketing and um, promoting myself. Eventually, I got to where I want. I got uh, there where I wanted, but uh, it took probably a bit longer. So my suggestion is to hone more on, uh, on a few things, uh, work on a long-term project, a project that maybe only where only you can can uh, tell the complete story and give it time. Be patient. Like uh, things happen. Things really happen. And the work, the hard work always pays back. This is, a, this is really a mantra for me. Everything comes to place at a certain point. You have to be patient. So when I see young people approaching me who really want to... Uh, find shortcuts and uh, and get immediately to, to the point of of having a, um, a full time photography career. I see a lot of missed opportunities because of learning. Because um, at the beginning you have to really uh, devour all the possible sources of inspiration which are around you. Because when you get deep into your job, it becomes really difficult to find that kind of research time, time for thinking, especially when your life gets more overstructured with uh, with family and with other with other duties so um, in a way i wouldn't change much of my career but for sure i would try to focus more on what at the moment what i was working at the moment and understand that the hours spent behind the computer or um, the hours behind your desk or the the um, the hours spent uh, writing and putting together your your submissions uh, as, as important as the hours spent behind the camera. That is a really, really good one. It's so important. Um, it's not my favorite thing to do, but it is important to spend time on it for sure. But not only. Eh? <laughs> Don't overdo that as well. Don't overdo that as well. Otherwise, the the main it's 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 a fine balance. You can't lose the original passion. Otherwise, that it, your pictures start to be boring. But you also can't uh, always be naive and and fully creative because otherwise uh, you also lose a bit of the of the plot. Yeah, I have a difficult time kind of uh, dividing my time between working behind the computer, writing, um, uh, making plans. I luckily now have a studio manager for one day a week who helps me with this because I really noticed maybe to the opposite of you that I was taking less pictures and I was constantly organizing things and uh, preparing my archive, preparing shoots. And all of a sudden I realized I want to be shooting more. Mm. <laughs> I'm a photographer. I'm not, I can't be sitting at a desk. So yes, indeed. yeah, there's a, there's a 
sweet balance like a it has to be perfect for you to be happy as a photographer <laughs> it's a thin line also i mean if i have uh, an it extra is. little bit of time i want to add the, another uh, important thing i literally i'm not that old I'm, i mean i'm just turned 42 but i am uh i'm maybe not that old for for, for myself <laughs> but i am i struggle <laughs> i literally struggle with the amount of pictures that uh, i see every day so I used to really consume the pages of National Geographic and other magazines and books to the point that I was studying every detail and asking myself questions about important shots, why they're so important, why they are so credited, why are they so impressive for me. And I learned a lot by doing that. In a way, those were my silent teachers, so I, I'm not fully self-taught. I mean, I look at the work of countless people and uh, I even brought out, I sent out letters, I remember, to some to some uh, back then night geophotographers. And the funny thing is that in the world of nature photography, in the small world, you get to know your heroes. So I'm friends with all of my heroes of my of my teenage time. And I mean, they're like peers I can write to, we did something together. And this is super cool. Um, on the other hand, uh, I realized that I, I have a metabolism which is uh, fitting for the late 90s. So to look at pictures very slowly and go to exhibitions and enjoy the books in the evening. And now with Instagram, I just... So not so much Instagram. <laughs> I guess yeah. really like a sugar attacks. So it's like, it's a, it is very difficult to, to, for me to stand, uh, to yeah. give, because at the end, uh, to, to give meaning to your work is that to believe that what you're doing is in a little in a little way, it's changing a bit the perception of the world. And when you see that repeated time and uh, over time and by hundred times, it starts to lose that significance for me. And I have to find that significant significance all the time in order to keep myself driven. Mm. It's such an overdose of images when you look at Instagram. It's really uh, scary to see how many stories have already been told. That always frustrates me because I think of a story and I'm like, okay, let's see if it's already out there. And it always is because on Instagram, everyone is doing something, seems like. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I also have a slow uh, metabolism. I like to go to exhibitions and to, yeah, a more slow pace of um, consuming images. But there's just a lot out there, which is also great because in a way it's also an inspiration, of course. Again, with balance, because... People ask, why doing an exhibition nowadays while publishing a book? It's a completely different experience. I mean, it's so, it mm. goes so into, uh, into the emotion of people that leaves them, uh, leaves a mark. And the other thing, it, it's very useful to spread uh, images and ideas very fast. So they both things are useful. But for example, I'm so old fashioned that I keep secret my project until the very end when I'm happy with that. When I think, oh, I took all the pictures that I wanted or most of them, and then I'm happy to share them. And this makes me a very low resp response on, on, on social. But my, also my other advice is that don't link, uh, don't uh, re rely too much on social because uh, I am a very dinosaur and I have plenty of work. So this means that it's not only going around Instagram, <laughs> the attention of potential customers. No, no, it's not. No, I, I also agree. I was also quite a late adapter with, um, with Instagram. I was a bit hesitant to start there. And yeah, I kind of changed my tactics now. I'm on Instagram a, a lot more now, which has helped me in my career, I think. But yeah, I'm a dinosaur as well, so I was a bit slow. Um, so you both have really traveled a lot um, as yeah in your jobs. And let's start with um, Ahmed. 
do you find that approaches to photography vary a lot across cultures or is photography really like um, a universal language? Um, the, the approaches to photography, I mean, is different from different cultures. And I, me being from bicultural uh, background, I do look at um, that... Uh, you know the history of photography was was very you know very eurocentric and in the past uh, decades now you see other countries uh, creating their own visual language um they have their own curators they have their own references frame of references and that i think that's a really healthy thing because uh sometimes it felt like you know this uh, postmodern perspective on 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 art in general that we you know here in the west have that everything has been said everything is done and now we see it's not it's only one perspective maybe that is uh, done but a lot of different uh, ideas and uh, um, and way of looking ha haven't been incorporated in that discourse so i think that um yeah we're living in really exciting times crazy times uh, sometimes frightening times uh, but also a, a, a very interesting time of opportunities. I think that's also one of the reasons why, you know, I created my own um, studio Polot here in Amsterdam, just to to find a way to to um, build these stories, uh, fund, uh, find the funding and fund these stories and find new people to, to tell stories with. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, very exciting. What do you think about that, Bruno? Is it... Is photography the same in every language or are there any differences across cultures? Well, there are differences. There are like trends, there are like styles. In age of photography, we used to have the Scandinavian style, then you have the Spanish style. And uh, I mean, of course, they fall into cliches. The Scandinavian is very minimalistic, very subdued, very gentle lights. Spanish is very colorful a lot of uh, layers in photography uh actually it is there are different perception it is interesting while traveling to so many countries to see how uh quickly the, the smartphones have diffused and so many people are photographing themselves in countries where you used to be the only one with with, with the possibility of recording a portrait and that of course uh it has created the different expectations. So it's it's cool to see so many young photographers coming from uh, from countries where, where it's very difficult to develop a career. And now you, they can finally uh, share their voices, their unique voices, because there is nothing like a local to tell uh, properly a story if that's dear to her own art. So that's, I think, it's a good thing. On the other hand, uh, personally, I, I grew up with this this... You know, you're also a little bit a product of your of the of the entourage around you, of the peers that look at your work. So you kind of uh, subconsciously uh, give in and and start to go with the flow to make your your photography more more appealing to everyone. And I want to explore more the the harsh lights of the Mediterranean, of of the places where I live, because I'm struggling to find fog and mist and this beautiful atmosphere every day. When here it's 35 degrees outside, <laughs> it's only scorching heat. So I think maybe I should reinvent the light and and just accept the fact that I don't live in uh, in Sweden or in Iceland. <laughs> yeah, I have the same feeling always when I see images from uh, Politiken, the newspaper in Denmark. And they're so the light is so gorgeous. And I always think, wow, those photographers are so much better than me. 
uh, which they probably are. But at the same time, I realized their light is a bit easier than the Netherlands. And I think you in Italy have have it. Uh, it's more difficult as well. With but you have the beautiful Dutch, light. the beautiful Dutch skies. You know the famous. Yeah, Dutch the skies sky. are great. The skies are great, but half of the year, as you know, is uh, rain. More than half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it rains a lot. <laughs> So today is World Photography Day and I was wondering, um, yeah, do you also kind of celebrate photography or is it something you celebrate every day? I personally would like to, um, yeah, say that to me it's so um, special that I'm in this job that I kind of made my job out of my hobby. And uh, so I celebrate it every day. But what is that like for you? Let's start with Ahmed. Um, yeah, I have a, I have a double feeling. I think on one hand, it's good to, you know, celebrate and to to think about things. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of important things happening in the world that we need to, uh, you know, um, you know, take a moment and and reflect on. Um, so uh, having a, a day uh, on on photography, I would say. Um, you know, visual culture, culture in general, uh, we need to <laughs> give it more <laughs> attention in general because I think we are, are very much influenced uh, by what we see and how we perceive things. And perception has, has so much impact on, on us in general. Um, so I, I would even go a little bit further, you know, just not just one day, but uh, um, uh, celebrate it and, and, um, um, and, and be critical about it and reflect on it uh, even more. Um, but that's, you know, every, every, every day is, uh, is welcome. So, um, yeah, and let's continue working from there to, to have a more inclusive um, uh, uh, field uh, of photography in the future. So how about you, Bruno? Well, I mean, it would sound obvious uh, <laughs> and rhetorical probably to say that Really, every day is photography day for me because photography, it is a lifestyle more than a profession. You look at the world with different eyes. It's nice, for example, now with my uh, older son uh, uh, to share a little bit the, the, the power of visuals. So I'm kind of relieving my early days of, as a photographer. And uh, so I would probably celebrate by looking at pictures and trying to take some nice pictures uh, of maybe flowers or butterflies with uh, with my older son and, and see the world through his own eyes. Oh, that's beautiful. You're passing your passion along. <laughs> Great to hear. <laughs> but also warning <laughs> against the pursuing a career as a photographer because it's so difficult. Yeah, you have to be kind of a crazy person to be in this career. That's very true. <laughs> but once you're in it it's actually quite amazing i think we can all uh, agree <laughs> yeah we will look back and say what a ride <laughs> definitely 100 percent. well guys thanks so much for this talk thanks bruno thanks ahmed and good luck with all your upcoming stories just want to thank you ilvi for this uh great conversation and uh, thank canon for uh, supporting us photographers thank you guys Next week, we are back on our regular schedule and the topic is a real goodie because we'll be speaking to music photographer Christy Goodwin, who has photographed many of the world's major music artists. And we'll be chatting to Christy about all of her experiences in this exciting, high-energy world of music photography. So be sure to check out the episode when it goes live on the 25th of August. See you then. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate and subscribe in the episodes listing. 
If you have any thoughts or feedback on today's episode or the podcast as a whole, why not reach out to us on social media? You'll find our details in the description below. We'd love to hear from you.